Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Four Persons Radio Show fans, this is the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show with me, your host, Ken Litchfield. We have a great show planned for you today. We will be discussing some common questions about the Catholic faith and giving some answers. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com. I am also available to come speak at your parish on this or many other topic, topics. And you can contact me at KenLitchfield61 at gmail.com for that, or you can look me up on Facebook. So let's get started. Did you have a question that you wanted to start with today, John? Yeah, I got one to throw at you that you may not have heard before, or maybe you have. So we're going to, of course, you know, me and uh, Luke Haskell have been doing a series on the Gospel of Matthew, kind of an exploration of the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, we've completed four episodes so far, and now we're into the 10th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. So to set the scene, Jesus tells the disciples to, they're going out and they're um, spreading the word. And he says, when you enter a house, uh, invoke your blessing upon that house. And then he says, and if you're not welcomed, allow your peace to return to you. Explain what is going on there. What does that mean to allow your peace 
to return to you. How does how does that work? Right. So uh, Jesus is telling the apostles that you know when you go into the house, you offer them your peace, and if they don't accept you, then allow your peace to return to you, um, as opposed to you know putting a curse on them or something like that. So, in other words, what Jesus is saying is um, don't allow – in other words, their rejection of you is on, is, is on them. Don't allow it to disturb your peace. Exactly. Yep. A lot of okay. people get offended easily. <laughs> but, you know, if somebody rejects you, doesn't mean you have to hate them or curse them. You can simply move on. Okay. Because we were exploring it as possibly being the sense of a blessing, offering your blessing, and uh, yeah, but then uh, I'm not familiar with the with the instance where you retracted a blessing. So anyway, right? All right. Well, okay. Yeah. Thank well, you for like the you say, you know, peace be upon this household, and if they tell you, you know, get out of here, <laughs> like, well, okay, <laughs> move on. Yes. So, so it almost it almost sounds like just the opposite of what you were saying. It almost sounds like they're saying, "Okay, I, we offered peace upon this household. Now this household is under a curse. You didn't welcome us. Uh, didn't welcome us. We're 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 taking that back." Uh, but what you're saying is that's not the sense of what Jesus is saying here at all. What Jesus is saying here is, "Do not allow them to disrupt your peace." Right, um, okay. and. You know, by offering your peace to the household, and then if they reject it, you know, it doesn't mean, um, let's see, I'm trying to remember where else that is, that uh, I think it's like James and John, they ask Jesus, do you want us to call down fire upon them or something? Right, yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> and Jesus is saying, you know, if they reject you, don't call fire down upon them, <laughs> you know. Right. Just, and that was, let's be honest, that was kind of an Old Testament kind of thing. <laughs> when you mess with Elijah, you got you got fire coming down on you. So yeah. And right, and maybe that you know under the the new covenant, you know, we're not you know cursing the people that reject us. We're offering the peace of Jesus to them, and then if they reject it, well, that's on them. Um, um and they may I'm end up in hell only- after that. Speaking, speaking only for myself, I'm very thankful that God did not call fire down upon me all of the times that I've deserved it. So, anyway, I digress, and we move on. Yep, there's there's plenty of times that, you know, some of us, uh, you know, God calls us to, to, to do something, and then we reject that. And uh, by rights, you know, God could call, you know, a curse down upon us, but... You know, God loves us enough to let us reject him and without cursing us for rejecting him. Right. Um, and we can return back to him um, perhaps when we're more desperate or when we're more open to it. Um, or be- more so. Because that's what true love requires, you know. Right. I got you. Okay, so what's our first question? Okay, so this one comes from Bobby J, and he asks, um, in Acts 18, verse 24, 
And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. So the question is, how could a man in 60 AD be mighty in scriptures when the Pope's cult supposedly didn't even give him a Bible until nearly the end of the fourth century? And so my answer for Bobby was, uh, when the New Testament refers to scriptures, it is referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Even when Peter you know, talks about Paul's writings being hard to understand and some people twist them, um, he's not saying, well, he, yeah, Peter says some people twist them um, to their own damnation or, you know, a bad situation for them like they do the other scriptures. So Protestants will often point to that and say, see, Peter's saying that all of Paul's writings are scripture. Um, but when Paul wrote his letters, you know, especially like they're addressed to different people and different churches, and they were letters of guidance to those churches. It's not like Paul was sitting down and said, okay, I'm going to be writing another, you know, book for the New Testament now. <laughs> and and uh, because this is going to become scripture. Uh, what the church did is like the writings of Paul over time, you know, supported what the church was teaching. And so they were added to the canon of scripture. Uh, but we have, let's see, I believe it's in Colossians, or no, I think it's Philippians, um, that Paul tells the Philippians to exchange letters with the letter that he wrote to the Laodiceans, and yet we don't have that letter in the New Testament. So that shows that, you know, every time Paul writes something doesn't automatically make it scripture. He wrote letters of guidance to churches and people, and those letters supported the Catholic teaching, and so they were put in the canon of Scripture because they gave good Catholic theology and um, church practices, you know. So uh, going on about – so when the New Testament – refers to scriptures, it is generally referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus didn't leave a Bible behind for us. The Catholic Church assembled the Bible by establishing which of the 140 early Christian writings could be read at Mass in the late 300s. Since Protestantism is so new, Protestants think that every time the Bible refers to the scriptures, it refers to the whole Bible. Historically, this is not the case. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul tells Timothy to remember the scriptures of his youth because all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient for every good work. The scriptures of Timothy's youth were the Old Testament and likely the Septuagint version, since Timothy had a Greek father and a Jewish mother, and lived in a Greek-speaking city. So this shows that Paul refers to the Septuagint as scripture, and the Septuagint contains the books that are now missing from Protestant Bibles. 
Anything you want to add on that, John? Uh, yeah, so much. <laughs> first, first of all, uh, first of all, he's he's wrong in saying that it wasn't until the fourth century that we supposedly uh, gave everyone a Bible. Well, sorry, that didn't happen for another ten centuries after that because uh, the first Bible was indeed canonized and created uh, uh, late in the fourth century. However. The printing press wasn't invented until much later, so the idea so a Bible would literally take a year to copy. So the Bibles were kept in the churches, and the, this idea of a private ownership of a Bible was absurd for another thousand years. Secondly, by the time that Paul wrote that letter, all of the books that would be contained in the New Testament hadn't even been written yet. We're talking about another 30 years before John Paul and his and his three letters. And even when you look at scripture, even when you look at scripture in the context of the Old Testament, the scriptures themselves do not nullify the authority that gave us those scriptures. And the best way to illustrate this is in the first chapter of the book of Revelation where John calls himself the faithful witness, and he calls what he is about to write his testimony. And you see that in the first chapter of Revelation. So John is talking about the writer as the witness, okay, and, mm -hmm. the, and, and the writing as the testimony. Well, Sola Scriptura makes the testimony the witness. Well, here's the reason why, and, and they use words like authority. The Bible is the final authority. The Bible is infallible. Well, Protestants get shocked when they ask me the question, well, do you believe the Bible is infallible? And I say, no, I do not. Do you believe the Bible is the final authority? No, I do not. The Bible is not an authority at all. The Bible is authoritative, and the Bible is inerrant. But infallibility is something that is exercised. It is a charism that is exercised. Authority is a charism that is exercised. A general leads his troops into battle by his authority. A CEO runs a company according to his authority. Now, the directions and the bylaws that the CEO writes out and hands down, well, those are uh, from his authority. Those are authoritative documents. They don't replace you, – you, you're not free to interpret the bylaws any way you want over top of the authority of the person who wrote them. Well, we know that in terms of that company, when that CEO is no longer CEO, there is a replacement elected to secede him. And this is what, what, what we see throughout the Old Testament. Whenever there was a king – that was that was no longer reigned. He was replaced with a new king, and we see it in the New Testament. We see that that you had twelve apostles. One of them was no longer an apostle. He was replaced, and we see we see Timothy seceding Paul. We see Mark seceding, you know, Peter. We see the succession going on and on and on, and we see the scriptures written in terms of the witness and the testimony. 
So this idea that the scriptures somehow stood on their own is actually a form of idolatry because what you're doing is you're giving human and divine characteristics to paper. At the end of the day, that's what the scriptures are. They're paper. They're paper with ink on them. Now, is it the inspired word of God? Is it the inspired written word of God? Yes, so long as it is translated correctly and interpreted correctly. So when God transmits a truth through his divine word, if you translate that truth incorrectly or you interpret or exegete that truth incorrectly, it's no longer God's word. It's your word. It's your version of God's word. And we see that. We see that, you know, there are false churches all over the world that teach abhorrent things that claim to be the teaching of God. Well, they can't all be right. Someone has to be wrong. And, you know, when you're teaching things that go against the teaching of that was handed down to the apostles and you claim that it's the teaching of God, well, it's not the teaching of God. It's a counterfeit. And that's why you have to have that church authority that sorts through the counterfeits and the real. Luke, I, I mean, uh, Ken, I'm sorry. Well, I've been working on a series with Luke. That's why I've got him on the brain. But um, when you look at the 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 job that it was to sort all of these apparent scriptures into a final canon of scripture, Ken, do you know there were more than 50 gospels? There were more than 50 gospels, and yet the church settled on four. I don't hear mm-hmm. any of our Protestant brothers and sisters arguing that any of those other Gospels should have been included in the canon. So they seem to be on board with what the church decided, what the church handed down, and what the church defended as Scripture. Well, they're defending the authority of that church, whether they mean to or not. Right. Protestants assume that, you know, the 27 books of the New Testament were the only books that were ever in the New Testament. And we can both agree that the 27 books of the New Testament were written in the first century, but uh, like First Clement to the Corinthians, the Didache, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Shepherd of Hermas, they were also written in the first century. They were also copied and shared amongst the other Christian churches of the first century and the second century and the third century. Uh, It's not like there were only 27 books that everybody just agreed were scripture and they existed from the first century onward. Right. Uh, As you mentioned, and, you know, I also know, you know, it took till the end of the first century for them all to be written. And there were also many different um there were canons of scripture that different churches used that may or may not have included you know all the books that we now have in the new testament and there might have been some extra books that they had in their new testament or well in their canon of scripture you know it wasn't called the new testament that at that time but when i say new testament you know people generally understand that i'm referring to the 27 books of the new testament and as late as 360 AD, the uh, church in Laodicea, they held a local council um, that we generally call a synod now, um, and they rejected the book of Revelation in their, as 
part of their canon of scripture. So it's quite obvious the canon of scripture was not closed until the you know the late 300s, um, and the let's see uh, in 363 AD, Athanasius sent a letter out to he was the bishop of Alexandria, and he sent a letter out to all the churches in his bishopric, his diocese. Uh, that you know, these are the 27 books that are suitable for reading during the liturgy or the mass at that time. Uh, and it was the Council of Rome that assembled what we now have as the 73 book canon of scripture for the Old Testament and New Testament. And that was, I believe, 382 AD. Um, and that same list was confirmed at the Council of Hippo in 397, or no, I think it was 392 for Hippo and 397 for Carthage. And in 419 AD, I believe, the, uh, the diocese in Carthage, they also reviewed the canon of scripture, came up with the same canon of scripture and sent it on their list, they sent that on to Rome for approval. Um, and that was the other thing after the Council of Rome established what we now has, have as our 73 book canon of scripture. They sent that list out to all the other churches around the Mediterranean for use in their churches. Um, oh, another thing is in 405 AD, um, the Pope at that time sent a letter to the Bishop of Lyon in what we now call France and basically gave him the same 73 book canon of scripture saying that these are the books that you can read during mass, the liturgy of the word at mass. And so these are the earliest times that we actually have the 73 book canon of scripture established. Final thing that I would that I would add is to, to our friend, uh, tell me how you would have dis discerned outside of the church that the Book of Hebrews is scripture. How would you have discerned that? We don't we don't even know definitively who wrote it. I mean, we assume it was Paul. Maybe it was, uh, but it's interesting that Paul doesn't authorize it. He uh, doesn't author it. He doesn't state that he wrote it. And we have the same problem with, with the Gospels. None of the four Gospels do the authors explicitly state themselves as the author. So if you want to if, if state that Matthew wrote Matthew and Mark wrote, wrote Mark and Luke wrote Luke, uh, you have to depend on the church to do that. And outside of the church, explain to me how we can discern what the 27 books of the New Testament are and what order that they go in. You can't do that without the church. So this this idea that the Bible was supposedly produced in the fourth century, well, that's like supposedly saying that gravity exists. There's no supposedly to it. It's a, it's a fact. I mean, look, we can argue about opinions, but we can't argue about facts. You know, everybody's got a entitled to their own opinion, but everybody's not entitled to their own facts. And it is a fact 
that the Catholic Church canonized this this uh, canon of Scripture and gave us the 27 books of the New Testament. It's not it's not something that's arguable. Right. And uh, another point um, in 180 AD, Irenaeus wrote um, against heresies, and in there he mentions that the Gospels, you know are written by the guys' names that are attached to them, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and those are the only Gospels that are accepted by the Catholic Church. But, you know, at that time, you know, there would have been the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Peter, and I think there's a Gospel of Paul even, uh, but those were, you know, later writings that they just attached the name of a, an apostle to, uh, and they weren't yeah yeah right so and i often ask protestants you know like when did your church decide which books would make up the new testament or even the bible and uh you know none of them have been able to give me an answer on that um but some protestants do try to you know <laughs> but they have this uh wacky thing where they um like Jude quotes from the Old Testament and um and also quotes from Peter's writings. So somehow that establishes authority for Jude. And that's since right. Peter says that, you know, Paul's writings are scripture, that's how we know which writings are scripture. But right. that so, doesn't so let's get follow you to the gospels logic. though. <laughs> let's let's follow that logical model. Ken, I think you're brilliant. Do you think I'm brilliant? I think you're brilliant, John. <laughs> well, say by that model, me and you are both brilliant because we just <laughs> acknowledged each other's brilliance. Right. I mean, it it doesn't get you to where you wanted to go. It's a completely circular argument. Um, exactly. You know, you can't use the Bible to support the Bible. <laughs> you can't. I mean, you have to have something outside of the Bible to uphold the authority of having a Bible and the authority of that Bible. And what what exists outside the Bible that supports the authenticity of the Bible? The church. Mm-hmm. That's assembled the canon of Scripture. Right. I think that's enough for that one. Uh-huh. We'll move on to the next one here. Oh, something in my eye, though. Okay. Yes. Um, so Vince K. asks, Catholics reject and deny the complete sufficiency of Christ, of Jesus Christ. Um, and usually when Protestants say something like that, they're referring to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. You know, they, they think that Catholics think that, you know, Jesus, you know, died on the cross, but what his sacrifice was not good enough for us to, to save us. So we have to do more works. So uh, I respond to that, you know, Catholics and Protestants have different views on what Jesus' sacrifice does for us. Protestants are taught John Calvin's new theology of penal substitution, where Jesus is punished for their sins and God saves them because he chose them. Since God punished Jesus for your sins, if you are one of the elect, then you are saved no matter what you do. If you are one of the of 
if you are one of the people that God didn't choose, then you are damned to hell no matter what you do. But Catholic theology is rooted in the Judaism that it grew out of. The Jews offered sacrifices at the temple in atonement for their sins. They offered something back to God as a sign of justice for their sin. That is the penalty of sin. When you break a window, you have to clean up the mess and replace the window. Now, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice and the final sacrifice that provided sufficient grace to save everybody. And the first Christians were Jews and brought this theology into Christianity. In Catholic theology, we recognize that Jesus wants all men to be saved, as, in, as shown in 1 Timothy 2.4. But we also must choose to respond to God's freely offered grace and allow Jesus and follow Jesus by doing the works that he calls us to do. And we find in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, that we're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ unto the works that God has laid out for us to do. And then Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, reminds us that we have to persevere in following Jesus until the end to be saved. So it's not just a one and done kind of thing because God chose us to save us, as John Calvin taught. Jesus taught that, you know, follows me will have to take up his cross daily and persevere until the end. And Jesus freely, you know, Jesus freely offered himself and sacrifice for our salvation, and his infinite sacrifice is provide sufficient grace to save everybody, but we have to choose to follow Jesus by responding to God's freely offered grace, and then we can be saved by doing what Jesus calls us to do. And the first thing is to get baptized. So your turn, John. Yeah, so let me ask you something. You you get an electric bill for two hundred dollars, okay? Mm-hmm. You sit down and you get out your checkbook and you write a check for two hundred dollars and you put it in an envelope and you put a stamp on it and you put it in the mail and you send it to the electric company. Is that sufficient? Well, they have to open it up and deposit it in their bank. Right, right. So right. But you sent your part enough, to get it to them. <laughs> you sent a sufficient amount to cover the cost of the electric bill, right? Right. All right. But what if you call the electric company and you say, well, I have $200 in my bank account, so you should not turn my electricity off. Well, no, that's not sufficient. Why? Because you haven't applied it to the debt. Now, you went earlier on Gary Machudo's show today, and mm-hmm. um, and I'm a fan of Gary Machudo. And one of the things that I love about his show is that every show he deals with a logical fallacy, a finding the fallacy segment of his show. And mm-hmm. this is what they're doing here. This is what's called the equivocation fallacy. The equivocation fallacy works like this. You take one definition of a word 
and you apply it to all uses of the word. You, you apply it inappropriately. You apply one singular definition to the word in a situation where another definition of the same word would actually be more appropriate. So let me explain what I'm saying here so you don't think I'm, I'm talking double talk here. There are two kinds of sufficiency that we're talking about here. We're talking about material sufficiency, and we're talking about formal or practical sufficiency. Material sufficiency asks the question, was the sacrifice that Jesus did at Calvary, his suffering and his death, sufficient to cover all of the sins, past, present, and future, of every man, woman, and child that ever existed or ever will exist? Yes, we agree with our mm -hmm. Protestant brothers and sisters that that is the case. Right. However, Jesus' death at Calvary is not formally sufficient to cover the sins of every man, woman, and child till the end of time. And why do we know that? Because souls go to hell. We know mm -hmm. that there are souls that will be lost. So we know that in the formal sufficiency, it's not there. Why is the formal sufficiency not there? Because there is something that we must do in order to apply that redemption to us. We must cooperate in a way that applies that to us. Now, our Protestant brothers and sisters will often say, well, all you have to do is believe. Okay, well, even believing is a work. It's an action. Mm -hmm. So even yep. then you're conceding that you have to do something. And the Bible is very clear that he who does not believe will be lost or is already lost. So right there, if you believe that, if you believe that anyone who does not believe will be lost, are you denying the sufficiency of Christ's suffering? Are you saying that Christ's blood was not sufficient to save that person? Because that's what you're accusing us of. No, Jesus Christ's blood was sufficient but the person didn't do what they needed to do to apply that to themselves. Well, what we would argue is that Jesus said, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me drink. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was in prison and you didn't minister to me. And those on his left will say, when did we see you hungry and not feed you or thirsty and not give you drink or naked and not clothe you or in prison and not visit you? And what was his answer, Ken? His answer was, whatsoever you did to the least of my brothers, you did unto me. Exactly. So, so you say that Catholics say that the sufficiency of Christ's suffering is insufficient. No. The sufficiency of man's actions is what's insufficient. It is our response to Christ's suffering and death that is insufficient. It is our love for Christ displayed by our love for our fellow man that is insufficient, that will cause him to say, depart from me, I never knew you. So why would anyone be surprised that Jesus' mercy cannot be extended to someone who won't accept it. That our view of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice is too small. Is that your view of the justice of Christ is too small. And Jesus cannot violate that justice. 
Jesus cannot extend his mercy to someone who won't take it. And by saying won't take it, someone who chooses their own selfish, sinful will over Jesus' mercy will get what they choose, <laughs> much to their own eternal uh, you know, disappointment. They will get what they ask for. And that has nothing to do with the insufficiency of Christ's uh, suffering and death. It has to do with the insufficiency of our gratitude for what he did for us. Right. And, you know, Catholics or Protestants that, you know, ask this kind of question, they, they're taught this idea that Catholics have to work for their salvation. And, of course, we both have to work, both Protestants and Catholics have to work for our salvation. Uh, Protestants at least have to believe. And if, and if you believe, then you'll do what Jesus said you have to do to be saved, which is get baptized. Right. But in the Catholic Church, we recognize that baptism makes us a member of the body of Christ. And as a member of the body of Christ, we have to do the things that Jesus calls us to do. Like you were just yeah. talking about, you know, clothing the naked and giving drink to the thirsty and visiting the those in prison. We don't do those, you know, because we're working to get to heaven. We're doing that as an extension of the body of Christ here on earth. Well, well let's let's explore that in two in two different ways, Ken, because this is very very important. First of all, when when people directly ask me, "Do you believe that you can earn your salvation?" No, I do not. But here's what I do believe: I absolutely believe that I can earn my damnation. I absolutely believe that. Okay, that that's the difference. I absolutely believe that I can that that I can earn my damnation. Now, the issue is this: the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and mm-hmm. that's talking about servile fear. That's talking about the fear of punishment. That's talking about the fear of hell, and we should have that. Okay, but it says that it's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. A person should advance beyond that so that you're feeding the hungry and you're clothing the naked and you're giving drink to the thirsty. Why? Because you love them. And why do you love them? You love them because you love Christ and he loves them. That's the goal. That's what we should aspire to. To me, the the biggest problem with this Protestant idea of faith alone, it's so empty. It's so absolutely empty. It's that, okay, I'm going to do the absolute least that I can do to escape hell. I'm going to believe, and that really should be enough. It's basically fire insurance. That's what it is. That, mm-hmm. that, and the question is, okay, so you say, well, Catholics believe that. What is it that you have against good works? What you're questioning our motivation? How about this? How about you? What did James say? Pass the James test. James say that you say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. That's James talking. That's not John talking. Ken talking. That's scripture. That's what scripture says. 
Mm-hmm. So it, it's this whole idea of separating faith from works. This this idea of faith alone is like separating the water from the wet. <laughs> you can't right. have one without the other. And, and if you have faith without works, it's an illusion. It's not genuine faith. You can't bless Jesus with your lips and curse him with your actions. And Jesus said this. Many will say, Lord, Lord will cry out, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I do all these wonderful things? And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Okay? Because they were hypocrites. They were actors playing a role, and they didn't have genuine love in their hearts. You want to separate a true Christian from a false Christian? Well, Paul gave you the, Paul gave you the, 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 the measuring stick. Paul said there's not one virtue. There's not just faith. There's faith hope, and love, and what did he say was the greatest of the three, Ken? Love. Love mm-hmm. covers a multitude of sins. What did Jesus say about Mary Magdalene? Oh, I'm sorry, Mary of Bethany, when she, when she fell at his feet and, and was drying her tears with her hair. Her great faith has saved her. her I mean, her mm-hmm. great love has saved her. Because of her love, her sins have been forgiven her. And and that's what it basically boils down to. So this 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 idea of faith alone, this idea of you know it's it's sufficient, it's good enough. My faith is sufficient. That that sounds like you're trying to get you're trying to pass the class with a D. That's what it sounds like. Right. Doing the bare minimum to get through without having to actually do the work, you know. And Ken, if you truly love Jesus, you want to do the maximum. I find myself feeling despair because I can never do enough for Jesus. I always feel like I'm not doing enough. Not that I'm doing too much. Oh, well, I better I better be careful. If, unless I do three good works today, it might look like I'm trying to earn my salvation. Why don't you do the good works for the sake of the good works? And and leave the leave the scoring to God. Do the good works for the sake of the good works. Love your neighbor for the sake of your neighbor, not for the sake of what people will think about you. Right. And showing that love to our neighbor you know, is the way that we show that we love Jesus because we're acting as Jesus would toward them. Uh, and it's living the faith. And you're right, you know, we don't have to keep score. <laughs> you know, just every opportunity that comes along is like extend love to that other person. How, how many good deeds did you do, Ken? You did 31? Ha <laughs> ha, I did 33. I'm, I'm right. better than you. Right. And, and, you know, our Protestant brothers and sisters are right about one thing. There's one thing that they're right about, but then they miss the point. They say, what can we give to God? There's nothing we can give to God. There's nothing we could ever give to God that he doesn't already have. Well, that's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. But Jesus solved that problem for us. He solved it. He gave us a way to repay him. He knows that we could never repay him. So he gave us a way to repay him. And what was that way? He said, what you do to the least of my brethren, you do to me. God's way of allowing us to repay him. That's God's way of allowing us to show him 
to return that love that he has given us, return some of it back to him. You do so by loving your neighbor. And the ironic thing about it is a lot of these products, not all of them, but a lot of them spend all their time attacking Catholics, attacking us mercilessly, uh, bearing false witness against us, slandering us. Well, how is that showing love of your neighbor? Right, and they, um, perhaps they think in their mind that they're doing a good thing by showing, you know, the Catholics that they're bad and that they need to become Protestants. You know? Right, and and that's why, you know, when I get in discussions with Protestants, um, especially on Facebook, Facebook, you know, I'll give them a few responses, and then I just wish them well on their judgment day. I don't tell them they're going to hell. Um, right, and. I'll tell them, you know, peace in Christ, brother, peace in Christ, sister. Um, and sometimes they get offended because I call them brother or sister. It's like, no, I'm not your brother or sister. <laughs> like, well, that might be the way you feel, but that's not right. the way I feel. Right. I extend well, that I, love, I love to it you, when they say, and you can reject it if you want. Right. I love it when they say, well, Mary's not my mother. Well, of course Mary's not your mother. The Bible says that Mary is the mother of the true believers. So, of course, you know, it doesn't say that Mary is the mother of everyone. It says she's the mother of the true believers. That's what the Bible says. So that's how we can tell the true believers from the false ones. Because why do we believe that Mary is our mother? Because Jesus told us so. He said to the disciple, behold your mother. Uh, that's all mm-hmm. I need. His word is good enough for me. Yep. And uh, in Revelation chapter 12, it talks about, you know, those that keep the commandments. You know, uh, the woman has other children, those that keep the yeah. commandments. The, the dragon went on to wage war with the rest of her children, who are the true believers of God and keepers of the testimony of Jesus Christ. I don't know. You can't put anything at the end of that but a period. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, let's see. Yeah. We've got time for this one, too, I think. Um, So Ed R. asks, Catholics, what are the keys to the kingdom? Now, just as an aside here, most Protestants say that the keys to the kingdom are the scriptures. But uh, my response to him was, the keys represent the authority to bind and loose. When the Jewish disciples heard Jesus tell Peter that he was giving him the keys to the kingdom, They recognized the authority of a minister from the dynasty of King David. Jesus is the Messiah that sits on the throne of David. In Isaiah chapter 22, we learn that a successor to King David named Hezekiah had a minister named Shebna, who was replaced by Eliakim. And the authority of the office is shown by the robe he wears and the key that he carries. And the keys at this time were large so that they could reach through thick walls to operate the lock mechanism inside. When Jesus tells Peter that he is giving him the keys to the kingdom, Peter and the disciples knew that Peter would have have a similar authority. Peter was to become the prime minister over the whole church and the rest of the disciples would become ministers in their own areas with authority to bind and loose. 
Disciples also recognized the office was handed on to successors, as it was in the kingdom of David. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 7, it uses similar symbolism, speaking plainly of Jesus having the key of David in his kingdom in heaven. And Jesus left Peter behind on earth so that we would have a representative to guide the church that Jesus founded. That office was passed on to successors like the other apostles passed on their offices to the bishops they ordained. And we find that in Acts chapter 1, where they have to replace Judas, so they elect Matthias. And of course, Peter, uh, I mean, Paul talks about passing on the office uh, or passing on the authority in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 2 Timothy chapter 1. And in Titus, he tells Titus to go out and teach other men who will pass on the teaching to other men. So there we have like four generations of passing on of authority. So what would you like to add to that, John? Let's this is what we call taking things out of context. They take half a verse. They don't even take an entire verse. They take half of a verse out of context and apply whatever definition that they want to it. So let's take this in context. Let's go to the source, and we're in Matthew 16. And let's go verse by verse. First of all, Jesus asked, asked them, who do people say that I am? Who do men say that I am? Now, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Then he charges them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter alone answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, that's verse 16. So, at this point, Peter spoke alone, spoke for the twelve, saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, and Jesus answered to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So now Jesus is declaring in verse 17 that Simon has received direct revelation from the Father that he did not gain through his own efforts, through his own flesh and blood. That means his own efforts. And I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Two promises there. First, Peter will be the foundation of the church that he is building, and this whole Petros Petra argument has been refuted so many times. Peter is the foundation upon which Jesus would build the church, and that church will stand forever. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay? Right. Verse verse 19. Let's take the two parts. We're not even talking about putting two separate scriptures together. Two separate verses together. We're talking about putting two parts of the same verse together. And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The answer is in the question, okay? The mm-hmm. keys to the kingdom of heaven are what allow Peter to bind on earth that which is bound in heaven and to loose on earth that which is loosed in heaven. So what he is saying here is the charism of infallibility is right here given to Peter. 
And right. we see and we see this again in chapter 18 where a, if you have a dispute try to settle the dispute among you and your brother. If he doesn't accept your word, bring two or three witnesses so that every fact may be established. If he doesn't accept the two or three witnesses, take it to the church. If he doesn't mm -hmm. re respect even the church, treat him as a publican or, or a sinner, a tax collector or a sinner. I tell you what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus is repeating it here. He's saying what the church says goes. Okay? So right. what what happened that when Peter was given the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Well, it, you know, you, were you given the keys to the house? If you don't have the keys, you can't get in the house. Okay? And and, mm -hmm. and that's what that's what's happening here. Scripture is not even mentioned here. This person dreamed this this interpretation up out of the blue. Scripture is not even mentioned here. In fact, the only thing that's mentioned here in terms of resolving disputes is the church. Take it to the church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. So we have two times in in two chapters, three chapters, two times that Jesus is saying church. He's talking about a church. Jesus did mm -hmm. not say, upon this Bible, I will build my Bible, <laughs> and the gates of the right. Catholics will not prevail against it. He didn't say that. <laughs> so, Right. And, you know, the part about, uh, you know, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. You know, if the keys are the scriptures, you know, how can the scriptures bind something on earth or thing on earth? You know, they're just writings, as you mentioned right. earlier, it's writing on paper. They right. can't speak to us and interpret, you know, to us what they actually mean. So I will, I will say this. This is an argument that I use against Protestants. And Protestants say, do you believe that everything that we need to know for salvation is in the scripture? I said, yes. Because Matthew 16 is in the scripture, so <laughs> everything that I everything that I need to know is in scripture. Yes, I need to know where to find the church that's in scripture. Once I found mm -hmm. that church, I'm okay. The church points, the Bible points to that church. I got it from here. Right, and as long as I stay connected to that church, you know, I'm in good shape. I will be in good shape, and. Uh, and that's why, you know, the the idea of Bible alone, you know, first of all, no Protestant church practices it. They always add, you know, some guy's interpretation to the Bible. And it's obviously not sufficient because if it was sufficient, there would only be one Protestant church. Right. And they claim that they, you know, they agree on the essentials, but, you know, they disagree on the the minor things. <laughs> yeah, but who they agree on the essentials. <laughs> they, they agree. They agree on the essentials. But then when you ask them, well, what are the essentials? You get ten different answers on what's essential. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's it's incredible. Mhm. Mm and you know, some teach that you can lose your salvation. Some people, some teach that you can't lose your salvation. Or some Protestants, you know. 
say that you need to be baptized to be saved, and other Protestants say, well, that just gets you wet because you're already saved because you profess Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. So they don't agree on the essentials of salvation. Right, right. So it's about time to wrap it up here because uh, I got to get on the road to get on home. Okay. So uh, thanks for tuning in today, folks. And if you'd like a copy of today's show notes or have a follow-up question, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com. And that's Catholic with a K and the number four persons.com. Or you can look me up on Facebook. And if you'd like to have me come speak at your parish on this or many other topics, you can send me an email at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. Thanks for joining with me today, John. It's always great to get a a deeper and other opinion on these many questions. And I appreciate your time and adding to the answers. Because there's always well, so much we can talk to our Protestant brothers and sisters about. It's just a joy. I mean, or it's, it, 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 you know, sometimes I, I it feels sadness in my heart that they can't understand the joy of, you know, it's like stained glass. It looks, you know, mysterious and from the outside until you get inside and the sunshine, you know, lights through it and then you see. You see the beauty and the majesty, and, and our church is like that. you got to come inside to really understand the beauty of it. Amen. God bless. So, Have a wonderful yep, week. Yep, God bless. Yep, I'll see ya. Bye.